Welcome to Word of Mouth, where dentists talk about how oral health is related to overall health, which is also known as the oral systemic connection. Although it might seem obvious that dental conditions and materials interact with the entire human system, there is a clear need for the mainstream medical community, policymakers, and the public to be educated about this reality as shown in recent research. That's why the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology, the IAOMT, bring you this podcast. The IAOMT strives for safer dentistry and a healthier world. Learn more about the IAOMT and the oral systemic connection at www.iaomt.org. The information provided on this video is not intended as medical advice and should not be interpreted as such. If you seek medical advice, please consult with a healthcare professional. Also, the information in this video represents the thoughts of the individual speakers, and the views expressed in this interview do not necessarily reflect the views of the IAOMT, its individual members, its executive committee, its scientific advisory council, its administration, its employees, contractors, sponsors, or any other IAOMT affiliates. This podcast is sponsored by Mars Biomed Processes Incorporated. The Mars maintenance-free Liberty Boss Amalgam Separator protects your office and patients, offers guaranteed compliance with no loss of suction, and provides the proven highest capture rate of all three forms of mercury. Hello, my name is Dr. Jack Call. I'm chairman of the board of directors of the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. And I'd like to welcome uh, uh, to this uh, discussion today, Dr. Ann Summers. And she is one of our, our veteran speakers over the years, going back to the late 1980s. And we're gonna be discussing uh, some of her uh, work that's been done over these years. Uh, Ann is a microbiologist and she uh, has some information to share and we'll discuss relative to antibiotic resistance and exposure to mercury. We'll get into a lot of other aspects of mercury exposure as well. But uh, I'll just take a moment to have Ann talk a little bit more about her background and, and credentials, if you oh, could. Yeah. The important thing about what I do is that there are two important things. Uh, one of them has to do with the exposure to mercury and the toxicology of mercury uh, itself uh, as metal. And the other thing has to do with its connection to the area of antibiotic resistance. Now, um, I sort of came upon that area starting with mercury first. Um, in fact, um, when I did my doctoral work, I was at Washington University in St. Louis and just happened to pick up a project uh, that had to do with mercury resistance in bacteria. It was a long time ago and people were not studying metals much in bacteria and this looked like something that was going to be kind of interesting. So um, it turned out that the genes in question were on a mobile genetic element, which back in that time we didn't really pay too much attention to that. But um, I had uh, the uh, strain and we began by looking at uh, what happened to the mercury when we fed it to the bacteria. And it turns out that the bacteria were converting the reactive inorganic ionic mercury to mercury vapor. And <clears throat> we only realized that when um, the samples that I had produced contaminated the radioactive counter that we were using because when they were on the little filter papers going into that counter, they were still alive and they were still volatilizing mercury. 
And the background on that counter went from like cosmic radiation background of two counts per minute to 80 counts per minute. <clears throat> and my advisor went nuts, as he should have, about uh, contaminating his precious radioactive detector. So we immediately, and this was a good thing to do, of course, started doing these experiments in a chemical fume hood uh, so that uh, the mercury not only didn't hit his counter, but also didn't uh, go up my nose when I was doing experiments. Too <laughs> bad the uh, dental industry hasn't recognized the exposure to mercury vapor during well dental said. procedures is, uh, yeah, is something well important said. for for the dental staff to, to protect themselves against, exactly. but uh, oh well. So back to, um, to, to your work, and, and for those who uh, follow literature and publications, um, <clears throat> I guess one of the really important papers that you uh, published was in the early 90s, and you presented that work to the Academy at one of our conferences. Mm -hmm. And if you could maybe tell us a little bit about that and what, the, what your findings were and, and the significance yeah. of that to everyday individuals who have mercury fillings. Well, yeah, and I did my dissertation in that work that I was just referring to took place in the early 70s. And so I had, by the time that I uh, learned about the relevance of mercury in dentistry, we'd been mostly concerned with, at the, big, at the time, there was a lot of concern about methylmercury and methylmercury in fish and so forth. And lots of people out there telling everybody that fish was, you know, full of methylmercury. And we kind of assumed, because it was getting all of the press, that that was possibly the um, origin mm -hmm. of the exposure that bacteria were getting. Though that we knew that in the environment, bacteria, of course, of course, grow places where we don't go, and urban sewage has a lot of mercury in it and stuff. So we, <clears throat> we were studying this, but it was not necessarily something that we were particularly concerned about an immediate relationship to humans a as a source of the, the exposure to mercury. Um, but in the late I think it was 1989, uh, I just happened upon a paper by Fritz Lorscheider and Murray Vimy uh, that uh, was in um, the um, FASIB Journal. FASIB Journal, right, yes. And uh, it was a, a fairly serious or, uh, organ there. And um, sat down to read this paper about them putting amalgam fillings into, in that case, it was a sheep. Model. Right. That was their first yeah, study. Very, very kind of, really? And it turns out that's what sheep, sheep were Fritz as a fetal physiologist. That was his model system. Yeah. And this fascinating picture that I still see of the, of the sheep on the uh, table giving off gamma radiation because they had used radioisotopic mercury exactly. in order to follow uh, the incorporation of mercury in the animal. Mm -hmm. And the thing that was brightest of all in this picture was the animal's gut. Yes. And I thought, whoa, that's where my guys live. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I actually called Fritz that afternoon uh, it was probably mid-afternoon uh, in Calgary when I called him, and I asked him if he knew anything about mercury resi resistance in bacteria, and he said he'd never heard of it. And I said, well, we should talk. <laughs> and so that's when uh, we began the collaboration that led to several papers, actually, but the first experiments uh, did involve um, our getting samples from Fritz, and they, they put and they they moved to monkeys. They moved from sheep to monkeys, and that was the the um, obviously right way to row. And they had, I think, initially just a couple of monkeys uh, that they worked with, and they had fillings put in just the way you would get it, as if you were human up there at Calgary. And uh, then they would send us um, samples in the form of um, 
just simple swabs, the kind of thing that doctors use to swab hurt places with mm-hmm. uh, anywhere in, in medicine. And so they uh, swab, they, they sent us swabs of feces from the monkeys, um, which is, of course, from the GI tract. But they also sent us swabs that had been taken from uh, the gingival region, uh, because, of course, that's where the fillings are closest to our biology. And uh, we would streak these out on a plate, as microbiologists are wont to do. They have an auger plate and grow the bacteria and look at individual colonies. And we had ways of assessing in an individual colony of a bacterium picked from a, an auger plate of assessing whether or not it had the property of being mercury resistant. And um, what we found and what we were concerned with at the time, because what had been coming along in another area of microbiology was an increasing interest and concern for the spread of multiple antibiotic resistance. Mm-hmm. And, and, and by the way, let me clarify something. Yeah. When you said about the mercury resistance... Uh, so basically, certain bacteria would be able to protect themselves against any damage from, from right. mercury. Yeah. And so that's... And that's the only part uh, we've been studying. Yeah. yeah. And, and so coincidentally, that was just something that was known about. And, and so take it from there then. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what we had spent those intervening yeah. years before I saw Fritz's paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and the um, mechanism of that resistance was something that I had done with my dissertation mm-hmm. and looking at other aspects of it, mm-hmm. uh, what had filled the years in between, how it's regulated and so forth. And um, there, there was at the time a, a growing interest in metals in general in biology. Mm-hmm. Metals are a little harder to study than other biomolecules, and mm-hmm. so um, it made a little bit of sense that you need, you need different kind of instruments mm-hmm. that are very expensive in order to make those assessments. So the area of bioinorganic chemistry or metallobiology was mm-hmm. just also kind of beginning about that time. Um, so we were toxic metal biologists yes. and using, an, using a very simple bacterial model yes. to study. And so then this paper showed up that was, yeah. wow, yeah. okay, <laughs> yeah. there really is mercury exposure someplace outside of urban sewage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very serious mercury exposure, uh, very intimate mercury exposure on our own GI tract. So basically the, this um, uh, resistance to mercury by the bacteria that, that they exhibit then just by some quirk of nature and the way chemistry works and, and genetics works, it it's, it's parallels then with the antibiotic resistance. We kind of knew that at the time because we knew when I first started working on the mercury locus, as the term in genetics that we use, where the mercury genes are, uh, we knew that it was on a mobile genetic element called a plasmid. Mm-hmm. And that also was an area of kind of a new at the time biology where people realized, people knew that bacteria had chromosomes. They're made out of DNA, just like ours are, except in bacteria, they're circles. Mm-hmm. Um, but lots of studies people were making of, of DNA and they could clone things and that was first done in bacteria um, were going on at the time. Um, and uh, we knew that the plasmids frequently, they had become known actually to biology because they carry antibiotic resistance. Mm-hmm. And um, we were kind of interested, but not necessarily fascinated yet by the fact that the metal resistance that we studied was on the same plasmid, a plasmid that carried mm-hmm. multiple antibiotic resistance. And let me make a point here. The problem that we all are concerned about is not an antibiotic resistance, but antibiotic multi-resistance, 
where the organism that's infecting you has two or three or four resistances, okay? It's easy enough for a bacterium, well, sort of easy. I mean, one in a million bacteria can become resistant to any antibiotic that, that they do it you know, spontaneously. There's point mutations happen on the chromosome, and in a million bacteria, there's probably going to be one that's resistant to a single antibiotic you might try to test. But bacteria have evolved to put multiple genes that are specifically focused on defending against antibiotics, and they put them on these mobile elements that are kind of like SWAT teams that you know can go out and protect the bacteria in any given environment. And they've been doing that for a long time. And that was just coming to light about the same time. And we knew that the mercury resistance locus was on the same plasmid, but we weren't paying that much attention to it until we saw Fritz's paper. So during the, uh, the late 80s, as there was this growing understanding about antibiotic resistance, growing concern, yeah. uh, I think even some of the, the public uh, 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 newspapers, magazine articles were starting to address the issue. Mm-hmm. Today, it's, I think, most everybody recognizes this concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's become a, a larger problem. In fact, today, compared to, to, to back then, how much of is it is the is it is it like twice as uh, much of a problem today as far as how common antibiotic resistance is as it was back then? Or are you able to give a number it, on it? Yeah, the, the the latest information from World Health Organization that monitors these things internationally is it hasn't gone away, mm-hmm. and the kind of problem that multi resistance is to antibiotics is that it um, it it primarily occurs in people who have had lots of exposure to antibiotics, but not always. Mm -hmm. And sometimes occur, like in the example of MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, um, which can occur in healthy people who simply get an injury of some kind. So it can occur that way as well. Mm -hmm. But it, it is a dollars and cents problem as well as a human life problem, uh, primarily in, uh, people who are being kept alive by some of the wonderful techniques of modern medicine uh, that require them to have surgeries or to have prosthesis or to be on a immunosuppressive drug uh, for, for various other kinds of problems, and they get an infection, and that's treated with an antibiotic, but it sometimes works and it sometimes doesn't. And particularly when it's a life-threatening problem. Now yes. we've got a major issue, yeah. increased hospitalizations, Sure, and genetic disorders, for example, like cystic fibrosis is a big problem and it remains a problem um, simply because um, that's an inborn error uh, that puts people at risk of having um, clogged up lungs Mm -hmm. and therefore be susceptible to infection. So as we generate more people, as as we're able to help people live longer with um, these um, really very brilliant but also very complicated interactions with them or interventions um, and and in the hospital and people spending long times in hospitals and people more people spend time in uh, rehabilitation facilities or uh, the elderly population is growing and so they're going there are more people in retirement homes and things like that where um, that kind of um, uh, lowering of the immune system uh, makes it harder for them to survive even minor infections and the necessity of having an antibiotic treatment. 
So when your paper came out in the early 90s, um, of course, you had plenty of critics. Uh, certain mainstream dental organizations would mm -hmm. probably be at the, the front of the line mm -hmm. complaining about the, well, they were about the only people who were on the line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but bringing up concerns about uh, you know what 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 kind of this is new new idea new concept <clears throat> yeah. and so here we are all these years later. Uh, I guess one of the questions is why hasn't this concern been more greatly uh, accepted by medical community? Because I, I dare to say <clears throat> that. That concern is probably not being taught in most medical schools, much less Well, the concern schools. about the connection, let's focus down to that, the connection between these two things, because certainly there's concern about antibiotic multi-resistance. Mm -hmm. And people who prescribe antibiotics, people who make antibiotics, people who find new antibiotics, that's a huge and growing, you know, continually growing industry <clears throat> that um, often is only borderline successful. And to some degree, um, because the, the bugs have this, uh, underlying wonderful ability to fight back with uh, the, the um, systems that they have evolved that can generate multi-antibiotic resistance genes all together and they can carry them around as a package wherever they go. Uh, think of them as apps. <laughs> it's an okay. app for streptomycin resistance mm -hmm. and an app for chloramphenicol resistance. Mm -hmm. So um, the bacteria have had that long before we started throwing antibiotics at them. And our use of antibiotics has kind of ginned up larger populations of bacteria that we share with our environment, and uh, meaning other people, uh, that um, we're more at risk for exposure for that reason. This is a simple use of antibiotics. And also, yes, the misuse of antibiotics, or the overuse of antibiotics in animal husbandry. Because at one point, more than half the antibiotics that were manufactured in the country were being used in animal husbandry for the growth promoter. And so some of that's being phased out, and, and, and there's better control on it. A lot of, and, and physicians and hospitals and hospital staff and even patients are more concerned about having a more conservative use of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And so people are doing what's called good stewardship, okay? And um, that good stewardship involves a myriad of different changes and practices from what you feed your cows to uh, what you do with your hands when you leave a patient's room, uh, you know, in the hospital. The physicians didn't use to practice. Um, so I think that a lot of good things are being put in place, but there are a lot of things working against ever really completely um, overcoming, uh, being able to go back to the old days where, you know, Penicillin always works when it didn't always work, actually. There were even times back a long time ago when it was first used that people recognized this isn't going to work forever. So there's, there's that. So there's that concern. On the other side, and, and, no, and the problem there is the concern that anything other, what is not recognized in that area is that anything other than exposure to an antibiotic might be contributing to the persistence and the spread of antibiotic multi-resistance. That's the pic part of the picture that's missing in that community. On the other side, what the dentists, I think, and the, the objectors to our paper in the first place at first kind of said, were the, the same crowd that has been saying for a long time, well, mercury in, in, in amalgam is not toxic. And so, and, and, and for heaven's sake, Summers is just talking about bacteria anyway. So they needed to shoo that away. But I think that the dentistry is still... Um, primarily in the in in the U.S., uh, though not other countries necessarily, is still of a position that mercury and amalgam is pretty safe. So don't bother us with 
any well, certainly that's the FDA's position. Well, yeah. They and have, so, they yeah. have and failed, so failed to issue adequate warnings and and guidance to its use or limitations, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and so I think if, you know, concern is different in those two different kind mm-hmm. of domains. Um, but they're changing, and that's good in both domains. Uh, what isn't recognized is that in dentistry, the exposure to this compound, one aspect of its danger may not be its simple toxicity to the human patient, but its effect on being able to use an antibiotic if necessary in that human patient uh, for the fact that what you're doing is uh, selecting for multi-resistant communities in your GI tract. Mm -hmm. And Mercury can do that. As long as mercury is coming through, it's selecting for the genetically linked resistances on these kinds of plasmids. Mm -hmm. The plasmids have both kinds of resistance on them, and you don't have to have an antibiotic to proliferate multi-resistant plasmids in your GI tract. All you need is a filling or two. Let's talk about the various uh, forms of mercury. You you gave a presentation this morning, Mm -hmm. which involved a lot of basic science, chemistry, and and what happens when there is exposure and the the different forms of of mercury and and their relative uh, level of of damaging effects and interference with normal physiology. If you Mm want to share with us some, some of your your observations sure. there. Well, this is my mercury hat, and we remain we remain very interested in the nature of mercury poisoning um, at the biochemical level, at the molecular level. And uh, we use, as I mentioned this morning, a, a microbial model because it's a simple model and uh, because the biochemistry that the cells are doing is uh, evolutionarily related to the kinds of things that we do with our own biochemistry. In fact, as I pointed out, many of the enzymes that bacteria use to um, uh, carry out oxidative metabolism to make energy, make ATP Mm. in the presence of oxygen, um, are in our very own cells and very very similar molecules are doing the same thing. Uh, And that's because long ago in, uh, in the endosymbiosis uh, of um, our cells, um, an ancient cell of ours inherited or got invaded by a bacterium, and the bacterium took up residence there and says, "Hi, I'll be your mitochondrion," and and they all agreed that was a good thing, and so now we can use oxygen very effectively as multicellular organisms, which were not really possible to use oxygen energetically until that happened. Yeah, in the integrative medical community, there's been a lot of. Uh, uh, dialogue about the mitochondria. Mm-hmm. In fact, there are some uh, models that suggest that uh, the mitochondria dysfunction is really the the basis and the source of many chronic debilitating diseases. And so um, you reviewed some of the chemistry involved with that relative right. to what happens uh, as we know, mitochondria are, are producing the ATP, the energy molecule for our bodies. And the, uh, the various um, problems from exposure, particularly to mercury, tell, tell us a little bit about how that works for those that need well, a little Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna go way back, too, again. Okay. Oxygen's a poisonous gas, okay? And on Earth, uh, early Earth and the early evolution of, you know, small single-cell organisms— 
um, got along just fine mm -hmm. without oxygen. And uh, then along came, um, as I, I think it was probably, you know, the atmosphere kind of began to clear a bit. Um, one, of the, one of the organisms on Earth, um, a single cell organism, decided that it could use light. And it could use that light and it could split water and uh, it could derive energy uh, thereby uh, from the protons released. Um, and those organisms are called blue-green algae or cyanobacteria. They were the beginnings of photosynthesis. And some of them living in our plant cells on Earth today made it possible for that energy to be so abundant in water that, that the plants could fix carbon dioxide. And, and so that's become the chloroplast. Okay. And when that happened, though, um, it just took off and the atmosphere became oxygenated because early Earth atmosphere was not oxygenated. There was no oxygen. And so I think it's about mm, maybe two and a half billion years ago began the oxygenation of our atmosphere. And once that started happening, other creatures living either had to hide from the oxygen or change their metabolism radically. And um, that complexity led to all kinds of both uh, metazoan as well as single cell organisms. But it remains toxic. Oxygen remains toxic even to our metabolism. We have to metabolize it carefully. And if we goof up, if our mitochondria goof up, while they're reducing oxygen and partially reduce it and get superoxide, then they have defense systems for that. But those defense systems convert oxygen to something that is almost as dangerous, but not quite as dangerous, and that's the hydroxyl radical, mm -hmm. which is still pretty dangerous. And those species, oxygen, um, superoxide and, and, the superox and, and, and the hydroxyl radical, um, happen in our mitochondria. And of course, that's what many people know of as free radicals, the one type of free radical. One type of free radical. And, and oh. there are other types, but the reactive oxygen species, the ROS, mm -hmm. are ones that are um, products of um, a slippage, if you will, in the dynamics that has to be. It's a machine that it's running, and it has to do this all the time, or bad stuff will happen. Yes. And, and if you tip it over just a little bit, and as one of the things I showed in my slide was ATPase, has many of its sub, many cysteines in its protein subunits are vulnerable. Are yeah, the cysteine is vulnerable to being hit by mercury, uh, and so that's. But it had been known even before our work that when people looked at a more global sense of what happens to cells and tissue culture, when you just hit them with a little bit of mercury, the first thing that happens is you get a great increase in reactive oxygen species, and when you get a great increase in reactive oxygen species. Everybody knows that you've done something bad to the mitochondria. They're in a very delicate balance all the time. Yeah. And, and so on a relative basis, when you compare the types of mercury, be it the inorganic or the organic, typically methylmercury, so tell us the comparisons that you've been studying and, and your results there. Well, we wanted to, in the, the experiments that I described, the proteomics and transcriptomics experiments, we wanted to get down to the real nitty-gritty of the differences in the molecular toxicology of organic mercury, like methylmercury or phenylmercury or merthiolate, and inorganic mercury, which is bivalent. It's Hg2+. Mm -hmm. And uh, the others are monovalent because they've got a carbon mm -hmm. and they've only got one plus. So they're, it's like they can only hold on with one hand. Okay. Mm -hmm. And whereas, whereas mercuric mercury can grab you with its other hand. 
Okay, so in a fight, you know what, <laughs> you know what's going to happen. Okay, uh, so in terms of the protein fighting off phenylmercury or methylmercury, it would appear, and we're not sure exactly what um, the what all those mechanisms are, but it would appear th- that the difference in toxicity seems to go with that valence. Uh, there are more cysteines that are, are unavailable when you're hit with mercury. And we, we, have, a com- we have a compound which we, we can test. How many cysteines are in the free-form file? And that is much less when you're hit with mercuric mercury than it is when you're hit with... And that's just valence. That's just chemical stoichiometry. It's kind of like methylmercury or phenylmercury can just grab you with one hand. Mm-hmm. Okay, but mercuric mercury can hold on with two and the cell has evolved to deal better with a sul- uh, two cysteines kind of actually getting oxidized and sticking together like this. It's got lots of repair mechanisms that will work well with that, but it, they don't work well with mercuric merc- fitting in there and, and linking those two cysteines together. So to link some things here, an individual that has the mercury fillings and the mercury escapes as, as a vapor, which is nonvalent HG zero. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about then what happens as that's inhaled and the connection with the HG two that you mentioned. Earlier. Good point. Um, that was found out a long time ago uh, by um, investigators uh, in, in Sweden, actually, uh, where they were looking at um, what happens when people inhale. Uh, mercury vapor and they had volunteers in this experiment and they would come after work and they would put them the hose on their nose and they would inhale mercury for a while and they'd send them home with a jug and they peed in the jug mm-hmm. and the next day they brought the mercury and brought the jug back was assayed for mercury and so there was a group of people that they a cohort of, of patients or clients um, volunteers in this experiment <clears throat> and um all of a sudden, some of the guys kind of went. It was pretty. They had a pretty good idea that if you inhaled this much mercury, that you were going to pee out so much mercury. I don't remember the exact numbers. Not all of it, by any means. But because um, nobody knew anything about that process, and the long and short of it is that some guys went off baseline and they started. Um, let's see. They were not. Yeah, they were not peeing out any mercury at all, and so it was like, well, what's going on here? And uh, so long they, what, what they learned was that these guys, there was a pub on the way to the experiment after work, and these, these guys had started, you know, tippling a, a few beers on the way to the experiment. And that suppressed the activity of their catalase enzyme. Um, and so uh, the catalase enzyme uh, proved to be at the heart of how um, mercury zero becomes mercury two plus which is reactive because catalase, we talk about something being inert, it's only as inert as the next strong catalyst that it runs into, okay? And the iron 4, iron 5 state uh, in a heme protein, a heme oxidase, is strong enough to rip the electrons off of mercury. And there are a lot of them. In fact, we now know that their lactoperoxidase in saliva is a heme peroxidase. And so it probably does, even before you inhale it into your lungs, uh, and I don't think anybody's actually investigated this, but we've got heme peroxidases all over our bodies, and so they can get they can get poisoned by mercury, but they can also they can also uh, work to oxidize it, and so that was the story. The guys were just inhaling it back out again because their catalase was suppressed. 
bottom line is that there, there is this change and transfer from the mercury vapor. We're doing the chemistry. And, yeah. and once it changes, then it's ripe to bind to, to all so kind of different... All kind of thial system. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah it's, that's the, a major target. Thial being the sulfur groups that right. are present in many amino yeah. acids, glutathione, which many of us that are concerned about how do we detox from our exposure to mercury, Yes, mm -hmm. we want glutathione levels. Is, mm -hmm. is well, there were, that was, yeah, and we have very high glutathione levels. I mean, we have millimolar glutathione mm -hmm. levels, but what I was showing today in, in our papers, even micromolar levels, that's down thousandfold below that, uh, can be poisonous to the cell. And I didn't go into it, but one of the reasons that we did the proteomics experiments was because we figured that there were proteins that really bound mercury so tightly that even a whole lot of glutathione wasn't going to be enough to save them, mm -hmm. okay? And so, and we found that, we knew already, because there is a protein in the mer operon, in the mer locus of bacteria, that has an extremely high affinity mm -hmm. for mercury. And we said that can't be the only protein on the planet that has that, and that that may be the reason why we're intoxicated by mercury, because mm -hmm. we've got a bunch of proteins uh, that are... So back on the detox, you, you brought up in your presentation uh, the affinity between selenium and, and mercury, for example. And, of course, we know how important selenium is uh, in our bodies for various uh, enzymatic Fire processes. Rate. Right. Well, yeah, a de a certain detox, uh, 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 repairing certain disulfide bonds, mm -hmm. selenium, selenium enzymes are supposed to go in and fix that, but they're also involved in uh, thyroid metabolism. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And... and I think it's pretty well recognized that, that mercury is one toxin that can adversely affect the thyroid. Mm -hmm. So getting back again to, to detox, um, do you have any particular uh, you know, top five items as far as either um, foods or supplements to be considered to, to help with the detoxification process for somebody? Obviously, the, the first step is to remove the exposure uh, mm -hmm. or, or reduce it as much yeah. as possible. But beyond that, as far as individuals uh, seeking uh, strategies to, to help reduce the, the damage that mercury has caused, the remaining damage that's in our bodies. Well, yeah, this is, uh, you've got to keep mercury out of biology, basically. And how do you do that when it's already out there? Mm -hmm. And so for many years, we had thought about this, and uh, the Department of Energy has been very generous in supporting our work over the years. And through them, we met, in the context of this proteomics experiments, we met some investigators at the Pacific Northwest Laboratory uh, in Washington who were working on a water purification material for recovery of mercury or removal of mercury. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was commercialized, actually. And it's a silica foam, basically. Uh, that is a product that is made. And um, we didn't know whether it was biocompatible or not, but it turns out that some investigators, uh, in fact, I think you've had as a speaker here, yes. uh, uh, Dr. Wasani Antazi uh, and Glenn Frixel, uh, at, who at the time were at the Pacific Northwest Lab, and she's now uh, at Oregon Health Sciences, made use of that material. And it's a sequestrant. It sequesters mercury, and it remains a physical particle, but it's a physical particle It's too big to get in between your cells, in between your tight junctions, but big enough uh, not to be absorbed into the body. Mm -hmm. 
And basically, she's shown very clearly in mouse model, in animal and um, both mouse and rat models, that when animals are fed that material, um, either when they're getting when they're getting exposure to many different metals that are thiophilic, that like sulfur, um, that their body burden is much lower. And what's exciting about that particular finding is that. Um, it, it works even after exposure and um, that you can feed uh, animals this material in their regular chow, their diet, for the, in the lab. And um, it takes mercury out of organs, not just the GI tract. And, and it's kind of, oh, wait a minute, it stays in the GI tract. That's why it works, yes. It doesn't go into the body like the solubles, which are important to have, to you know, the solubles that go into circulation like DMPS and DMA, DMSA and, and uh, Boyd-Haley's compound. It's important to have things that go out into circulation and grab stuff. But unless you get back and get it through the liver and into the, and into the GI tract or through the kidney and out into urine, it's not going to really do anything but recircularize stuff. And they all have problems in that regard. Of course, these are all pharmaceuticals. And, and this, this one you've been talking a lot about is not even available quite yet. But and we're getting short on time here. We've got to wrap up. But back, back to supplements or foods that are available for right. any of our viewers. Yeah, and I, the reason I brought uh, Wasana's work up mm-hmm. is because um, even, even with a nutraceutical intervention, the biochemistry, and this is another thing about bacteria that I, I want to insert. The reason that you can recapture the mercury that's been put in the brain, even with something that only stays in the gut, mm-hmm. is because something called enterohepatic circulation. And that means that stuff that goes in the gut doesn't always go out. It can go back into circulation, okay? And that's true of mercury. And the neat thing about using a particular compound is it interrupts enterohepatic circulation, and it makes compounds of, of, of the mercury, of the mercury yes. right, yeah. through bacterial activity, yeah. just stop those little rascals yeah. from getting a hold of this. So back to the question, I can't tell you uh, right now, I mean, nothing in our work uh, with bacteria other than don't put mercury in them, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. c- can, can tell you anything about what kind of nutritional um, materials, uh, or not just because I'm not a nutritionist, mm-hmm. but... Uh, a nutritionist would not be able to work with that at the time. I think we need to do much better mercury toxicology in humans. And, and using the kind of hints that we've gotten from our bacterial system to point at certain proteins. And so we've got to do much, I think, personalized toxicology is where we're going. Right. I wish we'd had more time to get into the epigenetics and identification of various polymorphisms. Right. To see in, a, in an individual person... Uh, who might or might not be, because there are people who are out there who do have fillings, and, and they're fine, and they, exactly. okay, mm-hmm. and it's like, what part of genetics or what part of mm-hmm. diet, and, it, and it's not to say that you should go back and change your genes, because obviously you can't, but um, I think that the interventions w- will be made more precise mm-hmm. when we have more precise uh, es- estimation of what, what it is that's going down mm-hmm. in a given person. Yeah, some of the integrative practitioners have been talking about how <clears throat> uh, the expression of these polymorphisms and that 
certain negative things in our life experiences like poor diet, not enough sleep, too much stress that's of really negative, aggressive types, um, exposure to toxins, all these things that then cause these polymorphisms to be expressed, that's when you get into trouble. So uh, it's a fascinating field. Well, that's more complicated than we can think about right now, but we just we just want to go in and be able to draw that chalk line and see where the bullet went in because that's the mm-hmm. that's where the rubber meets right, the road. Right. So. All right. Well, I really thank you for, for joining us and being at this conference. And, yep. and again, all the body of work that you've produced over your years of research to help educate and train our, our member dentists and who then share it with our patients and and looking for better health outcomes for our patients. So thank you very much. Good chatting with you. So that wraps it up. Uh, Thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll talk to you later in another one. Bye. This podcast has been brought to you by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology, the IAOMT. The IAOMT strives for safer dentistry and a healthier world. We are a network of over 1,000 dentists, health professionals, and scientists who research dental products and practices, including the risks of mercury fillings, fluoride, root canals, and jawbone osteonecrosis. We are a nonprofit organization and have been dedicated to our mission of protecting public health and the environment since we were founded in 1984. You can learn more about us at www.iaomt.org and www.thesmartchoice.org. The information provided on this video is not intended as medical advice and should not be interpreted as such. If you seek medical advice, please consult with a healthcare professional. Also, the information in this video represents the thoughts of the individual speakers and the views expressed in this interview do not necessarily reflect the views of the IAOMT, its individual members, its executive committee, its scientific advisory council, its administration, its employees, contractors, sponsors, or any other IAOMT affiliates.